Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. Today on the podcast we have a message entitled Seekers and Outsiders. We're looking at the passage that deals with the Magi coming to bring gifts to baby Jesus sometime after he was born. This is a central passage of the Feast of Epiphany, which just took place on Friday this week. Lots of good stuff to be reminded of here. Don't forget, we have Relate coming up, our course on relationships. You can register on our website. And we also have a newcomer's lunch coming up for anybody who's new. So check that out at northshorevineyard.org. But for now, let's go ahead and head to the talk. North Shore Vineyard, downtown Covington. Thanks for listening. If, if you've got your bulletin, the passage today is Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard of this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, For this is what the prophet had written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers in Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to go to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report it to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their own way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the child, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route." Back in the mid-1960s, there was a cultural phenomenon that became known as the British Invasion. Anybody remember the British Invasion? The British are coming. Um, It began with the the, the first uh, wave of the British Invasion began with the Beatles appearing, making their debut on the Ed Sullivan TV show. How many of y'all saw that live? (laughs) Got some old folks in here. No. <laughs> well, for the rest of us, uh, you've probably at least seen the video, which is thousands of hysterical teenage girls, for the most part, just losing it over the appearance of John, Paul, George, and Ringo. 
And this kind of signaled the, the, the British invasion, which was all these rock bands from England that dominated the charts in the United States for, for several years. But what I find most interesting about the British invasion, both as a musician and a historian, uh, comes a little bit later than the initial invasion of the Beatles. Because there was something else going on in Britain at the time that, that started back in the 50s, where all these white British teenagers started getting into Delta Blues. And it was, it was the craziest thing. I mean, blues in America at that time was basically a, a type of folk music that was really going extinct. I mean, nobody, for the most part, was listening to blues. And these young folks in Britain, thousands of miles away from us, they just started digging into Robert Johnson and Sunhouse, Mississippi John Hurt, and they thought it was the greatest thing in the world. So shortly after the Beatles arrived, there was another wave with people like the Yardbirds, Steve Winwood, Eric Clapton, the Rolling Stones. And what these guys did was reintroduce America to a treasure that was in their own backyard. I read an interesting quote by Muddy Waters. The, the great Chicago bluesman. And, and he was commenting on how really American blues music was actually kind of saved by all these kids from Europe, <laughs> from, from Britain. He said, yeah, it was the strangest thing. Had to get somebody from out of another country to let my white kids over here know where we stand. They're crying for bread and got it in their backyard. Love that. Sometimes it takes an outsider to reveal to us the treasure that we have in our own backyard. Sometimes it does. And that's exactly what we see going on in this store today. Why are we looking at this passage today? Well, for the last year or so, a year and a few months, we've been going through the lectionary, and the lectionary follows the church calendar. And church calendar is, is just a way to celebrate different acts in the life of Jesus and the apostles throughout the year. And on Friday was the Feast of Epiphany. Epiphany, epiphany means revelation or manifestation of God. It is a, a feast that celebrates God's revelation to us. And guess what the big passage of the Epiphany is? It's this passage we're looking at today. Now, this passage often gets lumped in with Christmas, right? We sing, we three kings of Orient are, and that's about as many of the lyrics as any of us know. Something about a star and westward leading. <laughs> we, if you've ever watched a Christmas pageant before, what are the characters you see? You've got, of course, Mary Joseph, baby Jesus. You've got some shepherds. You've got some angels. And then you've got these three kings, right? But here's a little something. If you notice in that passage, they're not kings, right? Do you notice that? They're magi. And there's not three of them. I mean, there may have been three of them. There could have been two. There could have been ten. We don't have a number. Um, and I think when we look at kind of the way we have treated this passage in Christianity, the mythology of these three kings, I think that makes more sense to us. If we were writing this story, we would want three kings to show up, right? That's the way we think of it. We like the idea of worldly power 
coming and bowing before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That makes sense to us, right? Anyone with me? I mean, I remember back when I was a brand new Christian, I was going to college up at um, a Bible college up in Dallas, Texas. And I had this one class on, on worship leading. And the, the guy who was teaching the class, he, back at that time, young folks, there was this guy named Michael Jackson. <laughs> and, and, and this guy who was teaching the class, he, he says, every day I pray that Michael Jackson can get saved. That he'll become a Christian. Because if Michael Jackson gets saved, everybody will want to get saved. Everybody will want in on this Jesus thing if, if one of these famous guys, one of these super talented guys actually becomes a Christian, then that will help our cause out. Have you heard these things before? I mean, every, all the time there, there are these, I, I hear these rumors. Did you hear about so-and-so, a uh, Hollywood actor that got saved and, and this? And we, we like that. That's the way we think. If, if, if these kinds of people from, from fame and fortune and worldly power, if they could just but get a hold of Jesus, think of what it could do for our cause. But guess what? In this passage, these aren't three kings. You want me to tell you what the Magi are? They're basically what we would call New Age people today. <laughs> I mean... Magi, these Magi were probably from Persia, modern-day Iran or Iraq. Uh, they were into astrology. They were into interpreting dreams. The word magic, what's the root word? Magi. Because all the stuff that they were into was kind of like, it's kind of out there. It's kind of weird. They're, they're, they're you know, kind of not in the confines of Judaism. So whatever these Magi were... There's one thing that we can tell you that they're not. They weren't good Jews. They were outsiders. And I find it interesting both in the birth narrative of Jesus and in this story, which would have happened several months or even a couple of years after Jesus' birth, that the people who get in on it are not the rich and powerful. It's not the Michael Jacksons and Bill Gates and Donald Trumps of this world. It's... Shepherds? Shepherds, by the way, I mean, this is not a glorious job back then either. I think that was the lowest caste of society. Shepherds get in first. But you know who the first people are to proclaim that Jesus is king? To see him as a king, what they're doing here in this story by giving tribute to him, they're acknowledging he's the king of the Jews. Why, why is Herod trying to figure out? Because there's a prophecy about a king of the Jews, and he's getting antsy. What are the first people to figure that out? A bunch of people, a bunch of foreigners who have a weird religion. who are into all kind of weird magic stuff. And this is quite an indictment on the Judaism of the day that, you know, I, I love what Jesus told the, the Pharisees at one point in his ministry. He says, you Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think the, that in the scriptures you have life. You're experts at it. But for all your studying of the scriptures and, and having all these rituals and doctrines and all these things, and you can answer any Bible trivia question there is, for all of that, you can't see God when he's standing right in front of your face. Sometimes it takes an outsider to reveal the treasure that is right in front of us. And we see this in this passage. And it's funny because this passage right here about the Magi, this kind of sets the tone for everything we see in the Gospels. 
I mean, the scandalous nature of Jesus. Jesus didn't get in trouble because he was hanging out with all the right people at all the right times. Jesus did not get in trouble with the religious elite because he was playing their game. It's because he was always hanging out with the wrong people. The Samaritan woman at the well, Matthew the tax collector, the, adult, the woman caught in adultery. You know, I, you just, the list goes on. This story reveals that God's not as into playing the us versus them game as we are. You with me? You know, when I, <laughs> I was having a, I was reminiscing with a friend of mine recently about my early days as a Christian and the baggage that I got from it. The first church that I was a part of as a young Christian here in Louisiana, um, I remember being taught by that church, whether explicitly or by example. You know, you pick up the rules by hanging around with any group of people. You get the idea. But here was the unspoken and sometimes spoken rules. Anybody outside of our club is wrong. <laughs> and when, when I'm talking about anybody... I mean, our club was really small. It was a one church, okay? I mean, I'm not talking about, like, all of Christianity is right. I'm talking about, no, our particular variety of Christianity is right. Methodists? I don't know. Catholics? Oh, they're going to hell. <laughs> Episcopals? Presbyterians? They're all wrong. Pentecostals? They're wrong, too. We, we just, we look down our nose at everybody. We are the ones who've got worship of God figured out. We're doing it the right way. We're the ones who've got the right way to read the Bible. We know how to pray right. Everybody else, they're missing it. And I was taught, and a lot of this is just picking it up by example of everybody that's hanging around. I was taught to just basically look down my nose at anybody, even Christians, that weren't in my club. Now, for those that were outside of Christianity, it was even worse, you know. You had somebody who was of a different political persuasion, different lifestyle, uh, different religion. Man, just forget about it. And you know what? That kind of teaching will work in your life until you actually start hanging out with people that are different from you. And that's what began, that, that's where the... the, the uh, the breaks and the dams started happening. I've been told these Christians over here, these guys, they're, they're all apostates. And guess what? I, I hung around some Catholics that really loved Jesus. They had the fruit of the Holy Spirit in their life. I got around some Methodists that really loved Jesus. Got around some Pentecostals that really loved Jesus. Now, all these people worshipped in different ways. They had different ideas on, on doctrine, different ideas on prayer. But I began to see these people have something to offer me. Yeah, maybe we disagree on, on, on some of the ways this all works out. But I don't need to write off an entire group of people just because I think we got it all right. And so I began to see, you know, if you, if you look at... When I'm, when I'm studying for messages on the weekend now, I'm kind of thinking my, my, myself of about 15 years ago would, have, would, would be cringing. The, the fact that regularly I'm reading 
on my bookshelf, Anglicans, Catholics, Methodists, Orthodox. Because I've, I've discovered that everybody's got something to offer. We all got a little piece of this revelation of God, and, and I need the input of other people in my life. But where it really began to, to change for me was when I began hanging around some people outside of Christianity, other religions, atheists, people of other lifestyles that I was taught to hate, that I was taught to look down on. And then I found out that, wow, a lot of these people have a love that would put to shame the people in my group that brag about being so loving, <laughs> that brag about having it all together. See, I think one of the most destructive things is, and, and I, I think this is where the Pharisees ended up getting it so wrong. The, the Pharisees were commended for for wanting to be righteous and do the right thing. I commend them in that. But when we ever think that our version of doing the right thing is it, we've, we've already, we're already becoming blind. In this passage, we see that the first people who get in on it are the last ones anybody would see coming. A few years ago, before we moved into this building and started our remodeling, which was a very stressful event for me, to, to thank God for Andy helping us draw up some plans here. I had to kind of be in charge of making sure this place got remodeled. I didn't know anything about it. But the week before we did all that, Dina and I got to do something that was really just amazing. Probably the best thing Vineyard has going for um, pastors is this thing called a Pastor Sabbath Retreat. And we went up to this retreat center in Wisconsin, and it was, it was, it was just an amazing week. Ten days, and we had access to financial counselors, marriage counselors, psychologists, dietitians, massage therapists, it was just awesome. But the thing that really just blew me away, unsuspecting, was, was having my first appointment with a spiritual director. Now, some of you may not know what a spiritual director is. I didn't really know much what it was either. I was just like, I'm going to try everything they offer here. <laughs> That's always been my philosophy in life. I'll try anything five times. <laughs> sometimes it works out good. Sometimes not so much. But I, I went down to the lake with this, this guy who is kind of like a vineyard monk. I mean, he's just, <laughs> what was his last name, Dave? Nah, I forget his name, his last name. But we go down there, and, and we're sitting by the lake, and all he starts doing is just helping, asking questions to help me reflect on, like, the last month of my life. And after about 30 minutes, as I'm just reflecting over, God in my life, like there was just some things that had seemed so ordinary in my life just a couple of weeks before, but when I began to reflect on them in a rearview mirror, I began to see, wow, God was really doing something. Next thing I know, I'm like, <laughs> you know, I'm just like crying, like I'm, ex I'm experiencing the presence of God as I'm looking in the rearview mirror. You ever have that happen? It's, it's, it's just like, 
Like God was there, but it was almost more profound when I looked in the rearview mirror. And when I got done with that, I was like, where do I learn these Jedi powers? <laughs> and, and so Dina and I, after that week, you know, we, we, we found out how we could get enrolled in a school to learn how to do spiritual direction. And spiritual direction, it's really not counseling or anything. You're not trying to analyze people. You're just trying to help people wake up to what God's doing in their life. And so we went through two years of those classes. And, and the thing that, that really got me that I began to, to really understand from the Holy Spirit is God is at work in every person on planet Earth all the time. I mean, it's just kind of like, guess what? Right now in this room, I don't need to freak any of you out, but there are radio waves passing through your bodies right now. All kinds of radio stations. But it doesn't matter because none of us are listening to the radio right now. And I believe it's the same way with God. Holy Spirit's always at work. I mean, we couldn't walk around. We couldn't be here. We couldn't breathe without the Holy Spirit. But most of us are not listening. Most of us, most of the time, we don't have the, the Holy Spirit radio turned on. And so spiritual direction is, is just trying to help people tune in and pay attention. And sometimes when you start paying attention, you notice that God is moving in some of the most mundane areas of your life. And you realize... Wow, this is beautiful. But you know what started happening as I began going through spiritual direction myself, I began realizing, I think I've had it wrong all these years. Because I was taught as an early Christian, the only time you make friendships with anybody who's outside this group is if you're going to convert them or try to convert them. I got to tell you, I'm not a good salesman. I'm a good person to sell things to. <laughs> but I am not a good salesman. And I used to feel so defeated as a young evangelical Christian. You know, I'd try to go out there and do apologetics and four spiritual laws and this thing and that thing. And I'm just like, I just, I, that, might as well ask me to sell Amway or something. I'm just, I can't do this. But going through spiritual direction really helped me because I realized, like, I don't have to, I don't have to talk anybody into anything. I'm not here to convert people to my belief or way of thinking or as if I've got God all figured out, like I've got the answers for your life. Heck, I'm just trying to find the answers for my life. <laughs> but now, when I sit down with somebody that's outside of my group particularly, I can truly love them. I can truly listen to them. Because they're not a project. They're not someone I'm trying to make a sales pitch to. Or someone I'm trying to just convince that I've got the right way. I'm trying to genuinely listen to them. But as I'm listening to them, I'm also trying to listen to the Holy Spirit. And what this means is when I hear something that I think is the evidence of the Holy Spirit in somebody's life, then I will affirm that. I was hanging out with a guy up in uh, North Carolina a few years ago. This guy was not a Christian, not in church. We're sitting out uh, by a fire pit outside. I just met the guy. He ran a little pizza place, Black Mountain, North Carolina. And 
We're sitting out there by the fire, and I just began to ask him questions. You know, like, what is it that, that burns in your heart? What is it that gives you meaning? What is it that gives you purpose? What is it that, like, if you could do anything, what would you do? He goes, man, I would really love to, to one day to, to help build sustainable, environmentally friendly housing for people in third world countries who don't have access to good housing. You know what I said? Dude, you may not believe in God, but I'm going to say that that impulse that you have right there, I'm going to call that God. I've heard other people talk about their love for their wife, for their kids. And I just look at that and I say, you know that love that you have for your kids? I think that's the Holy Spirit. When I see somebody that, that can make something beautiful, whether art or music or architecture or literature, I just say, you know, that gift, that impulse, I believe that comes from God. See, that makes a lot more sense to me. Instead of trying to impose something on people that oftentimes, look, look here's the deal. A lot of what we call Christianity, a lot of it, if not most of it, is actually just culture, and we call it Christian. You know, it's, it's the result of a Christianized Western culture. And, and, and we, a lot of times we lump in our cultural trappings with, you know, you've got to look this way, talk this way, act this way, do these things. We lump that in with actually like following Jesus, but it's, it's just the culture we live in. But I think it's a much better thing to enter into somebody else's culture. And instead of trying to impose on them my thing, find out what God is doing in their life. And identify that, that impulse to seek after God. See, I believe that all truth is God's truth. All of it. I don't think there's anything true apart from God. <laughs> I believe that, that the impulse to love sacrificially comes from God. I believe that the impulse to create beautiful things that stir our heart, that move us, I believe that comes from God. I believe our impulse to, to be connected with other people relationally, I believe that comes from God. And I got to tell you, when I made the shift from just trying to give people a sales pitch and talk them into what I believed in and started trying to pay attention to what the Holy Spirit was already doing within people, it made all the difference in the world. And guess what? Christianity became a lot funner. And... I became a lot less of a jerk. <laughs> Somebody say amen. amen. <laughs> See, the question when I look at this passage today is, what are the seekers that are all around us that may not be Christians? Where do you know seekers in your life? I mean, people that you may think, man, them people are into some weird stuff. I got all kinds of friends that are in all kinds of weird stuff. I'm into a little weird stuff myself. I, I, I got to confess, I'm a sucker for late at night watching alien conspiracy videos on YouTube. <laughs> and when I get with the right people, man, we can chase that rabbit hole. We, we can go deep.
But where are the seekers in your life that are outside of this church or outside of the church? Where are the seekers? Where are your coworkers that are, are looking? Maybe instead of trying to just say, man, you're just, a, you're just totally wrong. Maybe find out in that impulse to seek what you can affirm as the Holy Spirit. Because get, get, here's the deal. If you follow the Holy Spirit, he's not going to lead you to somewhere else. He's going to lead you to Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Where are the seekers in your life? Secondly, where have outsiders helped reveal the treasure in your own life? You know, for so many years when I was in the the, the group that, that had all the answers, guess what? I was cut off from all kinds of great things that God had for me from other groups of people, whether Christian, whether non-Christian. When I moved out of that way of thinking, I received stuff from God all the time, even from people that don't believe in God. Where has an outsider spoken into your life or revealed the treasure of your life? And then the, the final question, and I put this on your outline, is, this is a story about a spiritual quest. The Magi ask, where is this child who has been born king of the Jews? They didn't know precisely what they were looking for or what they would find, but they knew they were looking for something. When we are on a spiritual quest, we often cannot, we often know we are looking for something too. Sometimes we can clearly articulate what we are looking for. Other times we cannot. Today, think of your own spiritual quest. How would you describe it? For what are you seeking? And how do you go about your quest? What are you seeking today? I can't help but think when I get to this question that a lot of Christians, and I would include myself at various times, and this is what I have to wrestle through today, what am I seeking? Because unfortunately, I think in, in my Christian experience, Christianity was something that once you say the prayer to give your life to Jesus, you stop seeking. You know, we're going to do our little relate course here in a couple of weeks. I think one of the keys to being married is you got to keep seeking. You know? <laughs> If you just say, hey, I got that marriage, I got that ring, I got that certificate, we're good now, I found her. <laughs> I ain't going to work out real well. You got to keep seeking after each other. You, you found what you're looking for, but you still haven't found what you're looking for. So even today, what are you seeking from God today? And if you're not seeking... Maybe like that song we sang earlier this day, my soul is thirsty for the living God. Maybe you need to get thirsty. Get around some salty people. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> Why don't y'all stand up? Lord God, I pray this morning for everyone gathered in here. Lord, even for those who will be listening to this in a few days. I pray that you would, by your grace, help us 
to see what you're doing in the lives of others, to hear what you're saying. Lord, that we would be drawn to the moving of your spirit, God. And when we encounter people that, that may have different beliefs about you, or maybe outside of our group, maybe outside of Christianity, God, Lord, that you would help us to see what you're up to in their lives and help, help us to be the people that get them to raise up their sail to be carried by the wind of your spirit. And God, we ask you today that if there are areas in our own hearts where we have just stopped seeking, where we have just resigned ourselves to the way things are and where we've gotten comfortable and complacent, Lord, God, we ask that you'd give us a heart to seek you again. Because, Lord, you said that those who will seek you will find you. Lord, bless us in the seeking, Lord. Bless us to find you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.